Maybe it's linked to a funding round where we know we're going to be investing a lot in hiring, we're going to be investing a lot in new geos. And I think enablement needs to be part of that planning process, you know, moving from the home market into new markets. helps you open and thrive in foreign markets. This is Steve here, your host speaking, and today I'm so excited to introduce you to the first episode about sales enablement. I believe this is a topic that comes way too late in the growth stage of every startup, and yet it is a topic that will help you go to the next stage of internationalization. And I'm welcoming Niv Lalan, Vice President, Global Sales Enablement at Miracle, who will lay down how you can leverage sales enablement to expand internationally. Hi, Neve. Thank you so much for coming here on the International Corner Podcast. How are you doing today? Fantastic. Thank you for having me, Tiffen. It's a pleasure. Of course, I am very excited to talk about sales enablement. This is the first time I introduced this topic on my podcast, and this is such an important topic. So I'm I'm, I'm so thrilled to have you here. Uh, before maybe getting into today's matter, maybe if you could start by introducing yourself, Miracle, and and your role in there. Absolutely. So my name's Neve Marie Lalan. I am Irish, as you can hear from my accent, uh, but actually I've been based in the southwest of France, in Bordeaux, for the last almost 17 years. So I've been almost as long in, in, in France as I have been at, back home in Ireland. Um, and I am VP of Global Enablement at Miracle. Um, I started my career back in sales and recruitment in Dublin a long time ago before moving to France. Um, and I was working for some of the consulting firms over there, Accenture, uh, Deloitte, KPMG, sourcing uh, for them, their, their talent. And so that was my, my sales introduction to sales back in the day when I first graduated. But I had studied French and business in university, and I always wanted to live and work in France, hence the move to France. And I started working in uh, HR, in a training organization um, within a HR function in a corporate university. And that's how I got into sales and sales training at that time, before mm -hmm. it was called enablement. And eventually those roles evolved over the course of the years until a CMO came on board and said, you know what, Neve, what you're doing is not sales training, it's sales enablement. Um, and I kind of looked at her at that point in time and said, what on earth is this? It doesn't exist in <laughs> Europe, an English word, but I don't really know what it means. It doesn't translate into French. And in fact, what she explained to me was that it was much larger than just sales training. It was linking it to content. It was linking it to communications and measurement and being a real business partner to the uh, sales managers and to the C-suite within the business. And so um, I guess I've been through a series of different tech companies and the latest being Miracle. Um, so for, for those of you based in France, I think Miracle is a relatively household name now. Um, it was it was set up in 2012 by Adrien Nussenbaum and Philippe Corot, mm -hmm. who are our co-founders. 
Um, and today we have over 750 employees around the world based in nine different offices. So again, very international uh, with headquarters in Paris. So a French tech company based in Paris, but with very strong operations in the US, uh, in South America, in APAC. So very much a global, global organization today. You know, I actually met Adrian and, and part of his team uh, in, in Boston about three years ago when uh, I was there. Uh, it was during, a, I think it was a French tech event or, you know, something like that. And uh, they were hosting it. So, um, so yes, they are pretty well known and pretty well spread now around the world. <laughs> Absolutely. So we actually have 400 customers in 40 countries. So even outside of those offices, we operate in, in many different countries. Um, and maybe just as to what we do, for those of you who don't know it. So we've got customers like uh, Airbnb, like Accor Hotels, Kroger, Macy's in the US, Maison du Monde, Toyota Material Handling. And these are retailers, distributors and B2B players who want to manage their marketplace and dropship businesses. And that's where we come in. We're a SaaS solution and we provide them with the tools to be able to do so. So to compete on equal terms with those tech giants, I think we've all bought from on marketplaces um, and Basically, what we do is we help them to take on board third-party sellers to enrich their existing product catalogs. Um, so again, expanding that offer. And that was the core business of Miracle for a very long time. And the last few months have been very exciting at Miracle and for sales enablement at Miracle because we've acquired new companies. We have acquired Target to Sell, which is a personalization solution. Mm -hmm. We have launched Miracle Payout, which is a payment solution and a retail media solution called Miracle Ads. So you can see we're, we're growing uh, the product offering and the value we're offering to our current and future customers. And obviously from an enablement perspective, well, that means a lot of work, I can tell oh, you. Yes. You know, integrating teams and, and creating these new programs as well. But it's a very exciting time to work at Miracle. <laughs> yeah, it sounds very exciting. And, and we are actually about to talk about like this huge topic of sales enablement, really, really important. And just before that, we have this concept called in each episode, the, the icebreaker. So just imagine you have a dice with six faces. Just pick a number between one and six and that will read you a question. <laughs> oh, fantastic. I like it. Fun. Uh, four, please. All right. Number four. So number four. All right. Who is a person who inspires you and why? Hmm. Interesting. Um, so I very briefly mentioned in my intro uh, that CMO who introduced me to sales enablement. Mm -hmm. And it was, I think, a pivotal moment in my career okay. from working in a sales training, a HR kind of traditional training format to really being that business partner and that eye opener moment. And it didn't take too much, but essentially her guidance and her vision at that point in time, it was back in 2016 in France, remember, when sales enablement did not exist. It's a bit of a buzzword now. It certainly wasn't at the time. Okay. And so she inspired me to move on to the career I'm on now. Okay, now, okay, nice. Yeah, it's, uh, I think it's just crazy sometimes when you think about those little moments, those little things, you know, that sometimes people say, people think, and how this can change your perspective. And, and probably, as you said, maybe even sometimes create some pivotal moments that are just like really key in your, in your life, be in your personal, but in your uh, professional life as well, I guess. Absolutely. 100%. <laughs> Fantastic. Well, okay. So let's, that, let's then focus on, on Miracle, trying to understand like how you guys work and especially to provide a little bit of um, context for everyone. Could you tell us more about the stage of internationalization? Like where are you guys at? I don't know if you have a few numbers. Uh, you shared a little bit about the number of customers, but like number of countries you guys are, are in just so that we can 
get a global understanding? 100%. So we have nine offices around the world. So Paris, Boston, Barcelona, Bordeaux, Chicago, London, Munich, New York City, and the latest one, very exciting, in Tokyo. So we have a Japanese Ooh. office that opened in June 2022, which is a new experience for us. Um, we generate 80% of our revenue outside of France, Tiffen. So we are very much international. We have 63% of that, which is generated in EMEA, and 37% in the Americas and other countries. Um, and we, we added 83 customers in 2022. So you can see how much we're growing in terms of our customer install base. Um, so yeah, so those are the numbers. And you know, in terms of enablement, I have many people dotted across the world in those different functions to help uh, those hubs and those offices grow. Okay, definitely very strong internationally. And as you said, that I'm, I'm guessing that brings many challenges as per the sales enablement, which is why also I was keen to discuss this today with you. And you provided a little bit, I guess, of insight during your intro, but what does sales enablement mean to you and, and, and keen to understand as well after the structure of your team? Sure. Uh, it's a great question because... Again, I said it was a buzzword, and I think it can mean different things for different Absolutely. organizations and different people, you know, and because it doesn't translate well into different languages as well. So for me, I always use the Forrester definition of what sales enablement is. And essentially, it's giving the customer facing profile. So you think of the customer journey end to end and everybody who's in direct interaction with those prospects and customers. I and my team will give them the knowledge, the skills, and the process expertise to be able to maximize and optimize those customer interactions. So you can think of it from you know, the onboarding journey. When you're joining the organization, you need to understand the value proposition. You need to understand those customer references and stories. You need to understand our sales methodology. You need to understand you know, how we objection handle all of the skills piece as well. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, the processes internally and externally um, and what that looks like. And so it's very detailed. I like that simplified version when within, of the, within those buckets, there are, of course, many, many details. Um, but that's how I like to describe it. And I think internally at Miracle, there are three main focuses. Onboarding, of course, because we're growing rapidly and we have been recruiting a lot as well. Then continuous learning. Mm -hmm. And then the whole content and communications. We act as gatekeepers to the field. In many organizations that don't have sales enablement, we are bombarding salespeople, sales managers, the sales organization in general with content, new decks, pitches, messaging, tools, like everything and anything, but it's not being funneled correctly. And I, yep. I, I see that as a kind of an image of what my role is like. And to answer your question about the structure of my team, so we have a six-person team, which is actually a fantastic ratio because we have 200 customer-facing um, sales profiles within the organization end-to-end -end between BDRs, account executives, account managers, customer success consultants, etc. Um, and so the six of us, we are based in different hubs across the world. I've got somebody in New York, Boston, I've got Barcelona, Paris, myself in Bordeaux, and we travel and we go to the different hubs and we, we're very much present. And they have a mix of different profiles, these people who work in my team. Some have a strong enablement background from other organizations who were previously salespeople who moved into sales enablement. Mm -hmm. And I call them program managers. They know how to create programs, to structure them, to measure them, to certify on them. 
And then I have people who were salespeople at Miracle or within the sales organization, solution engineering, for example, so really strong product value proposition knowledge. And the mix of those two skill sets really works well in terms okay. of, you know, the, what we do and how we do it. All right. Yeah. I was going to ask you about the profiles of people, like what kind of profiles you're typically looking for whenever you're, you're, you're hiring like externally. Is that the kind of profile? Let's say it's not someone coming from sales enablement because it's relatively new, I would say as an area, at least in, in, uh, in Europe. So is that what you're looking for? Program manager, like kind of uh, background or uh, maybe like sales engineering with maybe uh, that are really keen to like teach others and, and just, you know, like share knowledge. Yeah, so I would say that things have changed dramatically in the last two years, to mm. be honest. Um, if I go onto LinkedIn now in France, I will find sales enablers. Mm. So people who have done sales enablement, maybe not for, I mean, a lot of years, but even a year or two, and mm. they have that under their belts. Um, I would say on the sales side, I would prefer to hire internally from the, our existing sales team, mm. someone who you know, wants a change. We, we obviously, as a kind of going through that startup to scale up journey, we have people who have matured in the organization who want a new challenge. We can't always offer, you know, management level roles to everybody, of course. And so it's a way of sidestepping and using your skill set, which is very strong in another way. So I would say when I'm looking at the outside world, I'm looking more at people who may be junior enablers who want to come on board and have that structure and have those basics mm -hmm. and internally people who want a new challenge and who have that natural instinct as to how to deliver information in a concise and digestible way, which is a skill set. It's something that's natural, perhaps. Uh, the person I'm thinking of in my team who is a solution engineer speaks three languages. That's a, a very wow, important yeah, piece as well in terms of nationalization strategy. But also being able to, you know, dumb things down for want of a better term, you know, make things simple for people, make things digestible. Um, and that sometimes is a challenge for people who are real experts in their field. As you're saying, sometimes you learn a lot of things, but being able to explain it in simple terms to someone else is also like a great skill set to have. And it actually also helps you somehow to funnel that knowledge and, and make even more sense for yourself if you're able to tell it to someone else, I guess. Exactly, exactly. And it's not always easy when you've been a salesperson. Sometimes, you know, a one woman or one man show where you, you know, you've been doing your book, you've been managing your book of business, you are used to controlling the deal cycles, etc. And then you're moving into a world where you're, you know, it's the one to many, you're, you may be coaching one day, you're, you're then delivering a like a massive presentation. It's, it's a different skill set. And it doesn't always translate to enablement. Um, despite people thinking it, it can, it, it absolutely can but it's not an easy transition mm -hmm. absolutely yeah 100% agree with you a lot of people listening to this podcast are starting I would say their international organization journeys uh, I mean some of them are like probably like the same stage as you guys are but a lot you know are like at the start of their journey and as you said today you have a six people team working on this like sales enablement within the organization but When, I would say, when is the right time for you to start looking at sales enablement? Because this can't happen too, uh, too early, right? Because then it's a, it's, it's a question of like having resources, financial resources to actually get people on board. So when is the right time for you? So... I think if I look at Miracle's journey as an example, you know, we obviously, we, we were founded in 2012 and then it took a few years to, to go international Um, and to get into that high growth mode of hiring a lot, expanding a lot. 
And I would say it's just before that. It's just before, maybe it's linked to a funding round where we know we're going to be investing a lot in hiring. We're going to be investing a lot in new geos. Um, And I think enablement needs to be part of that planning process, you know, moving from the home market into new markets. Um, It could be one person to begin with. Again, I'm lucky to have a six person team. I realize that's not the case in many of these organizations. Mm -hmm. But I was alone when I started in Miracle in 2020. I was on my own for the first year. So to give you an example of that. And I think it's, it's really important to have the heads up from enablement around this expansion to be able to structure, to be able to scale, to be able to measure. Why? Because traditionally, before we have enablement in an organization, onboarding happens quite organically with, you know, oh, you're joining in the Bordeaux office, go to Paris, sit with a friend for for a week, for two weeks, learn from them, discuss with them, maybe read a few documents or look at a few modules online if there's a HR function. But that's basically it. And that's not scalable when it comes to international expansion. So for me, it's it's about scalability. And I think the C-suite who have that vision, who have that understanding, they, they buy into it immediately. And it was the case with Adrian and Philippe, where they were saying with the EVPs of sales in both EMEA and the US, we need enablement. We need to go fast. We need to go strong and we need to measure what we're doing. And so I was brought on board and my first program and literally my whole of year of 2020 was, of course, because of the pandemic as well, giving mm-hmm. virtual onboarding training and measuring that training and making sure we were making the right decisions about recruitment and the people we were taking on board were certified on our value prop, et cetera. So, so yeah, it needs to be quite early on, not too early. You need to have feet on the ground. You need to have, you know, your value prop set up. You need to have um, some of your team's success stories, et cetera, et cetera. But then once you have that, you know, going to the next level, expanding and hiring rapidly, then then enablement becomes into play very quickly. Okay. So if I understood correctly, you mentioned that ideally you get to that point when there's, I would say, a few customers that have been signed up a team that's probably already set up uh, that's working on the market uh, with ideally i would say product to market fit found uh, somewhat so that to be able like to uh, to 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 work on that uh, on that knowledge and and for you you there there was like three key points you said that were very important to structure scale and and measure that's why a sales enablement organization needs to be created and one thing that you mentioned to me is actually quite important you said in the c suite they had this vision They had this vision that sales enablement was key to be able to do that. And it's great. But I guess sometimes it's not always the case. And my question on that is, how do you prove, how do you make your point toward the C-suite that, yes, you need sales enablement to get there? Because unfortunately, it's not, I mean, this knowledge is not shared by every single board. So how do you make it happen? How do you prove your case? Yeah, so it's it's a difficult one. Before I arrived, it's it's a, you know, I think it was the influence of the EVPs of sales who had come from different scale up organizations. So we have our EVP from EMEA who came from Zora and had gone through that, you know, scale up to IPO journey and had said immediately when he came on board, you know, Adrian and Philippe, one of the things that helped us get there was sales enablement. And he was my sponsor before I even joined. But I think when you do come on board as as myself and my, uh, you know, in my role as the leader globally, 
you really need to prove your worth very quickly. And I think there's a there's a trade-off between tactical enablement and strategic enablement. You know, tactical enablement will be, as I mentioned, getting that onboarding up and running fine, okay? But there's almost a so what moment from the C-suite saying, we could get a HR to do this, or maybe someone within the team can double, you know, double task and, and, and take over this onboarding piece as well. And what I look at and the business case that I always make in every organization I work for is to have four different sets of metrics that we measure and that we can then prove upon, right? The first one is the activity. Oh, you know, who has done what? What are the what are the levels of activity? How many modules we, we produce, but also who has been following them and what maybe are the basic results from those modules? That's an activity level. And again, it's kind of a so what, but at least it proves that we have put in place and we have what we are measuring who has done what. The second level is quality feedback. So from the field teams, the people who are actually selling, feeding back to enablement, but also to the subject matter experts, what is working and what's not? What is the content they need? What, you know, what is that content that's being delivered relative and relevant for their jobs? And is it useful? Is it actionable immediately? So that really field input. Mm -hmm. The third level is around adoption. So once I've delivered content, once I have delivered messaging, has the field actually adopted it? Because again, having joined in the pandemic, most people were sitting behind their Zoom screens or reading or watching videos. How can we ensure that they actually use that messaging in their real jobs? There are two ways for me of doing this. The first one is certification. So in onboarding at Miracle, we have certifications at 30, 60, 90 days, which represent role play situations that are semi, semi-fictional, but quite real in the sense we play, you know, the customer, et cetera. And we have certify, certifying grids on that and we can, we can assess people. And the second thing is call listening, right? It's really being on the calls or listening to recordings of calls of real life situations where those people, those field uh, representatives have actually put in place the messaging that we have spoken about during the previous enablement sessions. So that's around adoption. And for me, it's key. And it's, it's, the, it's the key business case that I will always make because we can prove, you know, I mentioned we, we, we acquired businesses recent, recently at Miracle. We're launching new mm-hmm. products. Mm-hmm. How can I prove to the C-suite that people understand those products. They can understand the value proposition. They're able to handle those basic objections around it. They know the competition. All of those, you know, that sales kit and that skill set that we're trying to enable on. The fourth bucket is probably the most difficult bucket from an enablement professional's perspective, but it's the most impactful in terms of the C-suite and it's called impact, right? It's like, Mm -hmm. so what in terms of uh, business metrics? If you look at onboarding, one of the things that I measure is the time to first deal and the time to second deal. You know, from before I joined or when I first joined to now, has the time to first deal been reduced? We can obviously impact that um, as an enablement function. We may not be the only factor because, you know, if you're working in a brand new market, you're in an evangelization mode, maybe your deal cycles will be a bit longer, but we can certainly impact that. And I think that's something we can prove upon. And and here we're talking about a metric uh, during the onboarding process, right? Uh, when uh, Absolutely. Like a new joiner, how fast can he, can he start selling, basically? Exactly. And, you know, we're, we're an enterprise company where we have enterprise level deals. They're not transactional. They're very much consultative. So 
longer deal cycles. So it's something we can't measure immediately. So we have to have those leading indicators, which are more around the activity and certification metrics first, before we get to the impact metrics. That's that's the logical progression. Mm-hmm. Um, when I mentioned, you know, launching new products, it can be the number of deals that were sold on those new number of do- uh, uh, on those new products. It could be um, the deal velocity. You know, have our sales cycles improved, increased in terms of uh, velocity? Um, and if we're we're enabling BDRs, for example, as we do um, often, we have weekly sessions with them. It's pipeline metrics. So again, we are a part of the equation. I wouldn't say we're the whole result, but we certainly can can look at those metrics to both impact them, but also learn from them. You know, if we're looking at our deal cycles and we see in a stage two, which may be the qualification of a deal, it's slowing down over time, as an example. Mm -hmm. Well, we can impact that by going and producing programs or or doing coaching and enablement around that specific topic. So it goes both ways, if you like. But I think those are the, the kind of metrics that I look at those are the kind of things I feed back to the C-suite who are very receptive because they are very close. Again, in this scale-up organization, we, we are getting bigger, but we're not a massive organization. I think it's easy for them to see the impacts immediately. Um, and so, yeah, that's what we have implemented at Miracle. All right, which means as well, when we talk about impact, uh, especially if you have long sales cycle, this could take some time to actually come back to the C-suite, say, hey, guys, here is what, we, what, what we've done. So we can even maybe talk about like one year or like, one, or like 18 months, right? Like sometimes to, to make sure that you get some concrete impact KPIs. On the impact ones, yes. That's why adoption is so important. Mm. That's why certification in leading indicators. And I'll give you, you know, an example of during onboarding, oftentimes it can be enablement who gives the heads up about somebody not quite making the cut in terms of their knowledge journey before the sales manager even realizes. Because the sales manager is looking at looking for the revenue metrics, pipeline, yes, absolutely. But again, in a long sales cycle, you don't have that info straight away. Whereas from an enablement perspective, you can certainly have, if the person has failed the 30-day certification, again, it's not a red flag, but it's a little bit of an orange flag. Mm-hmm. And so how can we give those indicators to sales managers very early on to make sure we've made the right decisions. And in fact, I'm on the onboarding piece, I think it's really important as well for enablement to be involved even before the person comes on board. I'm involved in the recruitment cycles. I'm involved in what we call the jury presentation, which is like the the role play situation we do during uh, recruitment cycles. And that means that I can adjust the program, the onboarding program to that individual. Mm-hmm. If it's a junior account executive coming on board that needs you know, more advanced skill sets and consultative selling, whatever it may be, but we can adjust. So we're, we're partners from HR all the way up to sales management to C-suite. Um, so we interact with so many different individuals and functions within the organization. Yeah, and uh, I have some questions around like how you work with sales just like right afterwards, but just to sum up a little bit what you said, uh, for you, there's like four points that are very important to to prove, I would say, the the impact and uh, and how useful is self-enablement. So you mentioned first, it's the like having a set of metrics, more like the activity level kind of like yeah. metrics. Second, quality feedback. So about like the field inputs on the team to try to uh, understand uh, if like what is the content they need, for instance, how is it used, etc., Third, the adoption. You mentioned that uh, your the certifications are very useful, especially on on the onboarding side, because in 90 days you can kind of know before 
uh, the sales manager try to really work with them on a on a one on one basis, etc. Is that person uh, on board? Do, did they understand the basics of what we do, and and can they can they actually like uh, get on deals and 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 you know be able to sell like more or less? So certification and listening real life situation. So I'm guessing a lot of like cold listening to uh, understand what is being said, how it's being said, and if that fits the, the playbook and force the impact, trying to get like business metrics, as you said, like time to first deals, for instance, uh, pipeline metrics, uh, which requires time uh, to then go back to the C-suite and say, yes, this is the impact that we provided. Absolutely. I think we'd need to do it on a continuous basis, quarter by quarter, mm. but the trends take time to to analyze for sure, for and, sure. And I know after it really depends on the context, on the company, et cetera, et cetera, but maybe from like miracle standpoint, what's a good like impact expectation, you know, like uh, uh, being uh, able to implement a sales enablement like what did miracle see as impacts on those like metrics that made them say okay yeah let's keep investing on it well one very concrete one again when i when i joined we were in uh, very much recruitment mode 2020 2021 you know a couple of series of funding and we were growing extremely rapidly and one of the things was, you know, you have this phenomenon of new on new. You've got new sales managers coming on board. You've got new AEs and AMs coming on board. And it's like, where's the tribal knowledge, et cetera. So structuring those onboarding programs and then showing that we reduced the time to first deal by 50% in 50%, that year. 50%, okay. Um, and that was a massive achievement in terms of, uh, yeah, in terms of a consultative selling uh, cycle. So so that's, that's one concrete example. Mm-hmm. And then through the, the certification programs as well, showing that, Somebody who does not go through an enablement program and tries to get certified, you know, just to wing it kind of thing, you know, ah, no, I understand the value prop of this new product. I'm just going to try and do the certification. And those who actually go through the content in the way that we have structured the content, the results are completely different. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you have to allow for we're not we're not in school, right? This is one thing that, you know, you can get an objection internally on enablement sometimes where I have to sit through another video. I have to read through this course. I have to do these things, you know, it's like back in college and, and you yourself know as a salesperson, you're, you know, you've got other things on the burner, right. And other priorities. So it's up to us to be flexible, but at the same time, we need to police the basics and make sure that the customer experience, because at the end of the day, that's what I care about. I mean, I'm speaking about a lot of internal stuff here, but what I care about is the customer experience that these people are giving to our prospects and to our customers. And, you know, through our programs, I help to ensure that that customer experience is optimal because they're giving the right messages, because they're asking the right questions, because they're digging deeper and they're not being, you know, transactional sellers. They're being real consultants and business partners and trusted advisors to our prospects. Um, and, and and honestly, I've got great sponsor- sponsorship internally because this cannot be a one-woman show or a one-team show. It absolutely isn't. This is where the sales managers and the C-suite come in to really reinforce what I'm saying. You know, you need to do this and this is why you need to do it. This is what's in it for you. But we're going we're behind Neve and her team in this initiative. And that's actually exactly where I want to spend a little bit of time on. I was going to say listening to you and part of uh, what you do when you like listen to calls and like provide feedback, I would say, yeah, this is actually exactly my job right now. Well, obviously, with Corino, it's not at that stage of miracle, like much less people. So uh, for us, we actually don't have sales enablement yet. I mean, it's spread out, right? Like between me and and, and, and different uh, marketing, etc. like for now. But 
Mm-hmm. What's a good relationship, basically, with sales manager? Because at some point, you also want to, I mean, you know, coaching, you you mentioned it a little bit earlier. You said, yeah, we, 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 we provide some coaching, but that's also part of the role of like a sales manager. So what's the difference and, and what's a good partnership, basically, like with them so that it works smoothly and, and, and it's clear also for every salesperson that this is sales enablement's job and this is uh, what sales manager do? Yeah, it's a really great question. And I do think the lines can be blurry sometimes. Mm-hmm. I would say that we're when we design enablement and when we deliver enablement, it is mostly one-to-many, right? It's more, you know, for a hub, for a specific profile, um, on a particular product, etc. And the call listening that we do, we can certainly comment on it, but we don't position ourselves as a manager. You know, we would say, great job on that, or a nice, a nice use of this piece of content or this piece of messaging. If we see a problem, that's positive messaging, obviously. If we see an issue or a problem or what we perceive as a problem, we will flag it through the tool to the manager. We don't see it as our role to directly give that feedback unless it's in that certification space where it's a it's a it's very much a classroom atmosphere and environment on business deals the sales manager's role to me is to give the feedback so mm-hmm. but the sales manager realistically if you have a team of 10 people you cannot listen to every single call you cannot be on those calls physically so we would extract some of the calls and we would say right you know this this may you know, need a look from your perspective, what do you think? And then the sales manager will come back and sometimes we'll say, no, it's it's actually, you know, it's actually on point. Or most often we'll come back and say, oh, you're right. Heads, great heads up for me. Great partnership. Let's, let's try and give this feedback to this person. So we try to be almost like a right-hand person for the, for the sales okay. managers, um, you know, influencing them, giving them feedback, but also not making it seem like we're the police, right? And that's where it's delicate because, yes. again, we're not hierarchically linked to the AEs or the AMs. We don't want to position ourselves as that. We want to position ourselves as trusted advisors, which we are, but it's a delicate balance because mm-hmm. we want to give feedback, but at the same time not be perceived as the internal police either. Do you have, I mean, does your team have um, kind of one-on-one moment with like AEs or AMs um, or is that more of a, a group thing every time? So we have absolutely one-on-one moments during onboarding for sure. Okay. During continuous learning, it really depends on the situation. It can happen where we have performance improvement plans in place, for example. Um, we can, you know, enablement can be involved through HR and through the sales manager to try and, you know, upskill on a certain topic. Um, but mostly in continuous learning, once the people are ramped, it's more the one to many that comes into play. Okay. So we are less involved in a in a one to one coaching, and we wouldn't position ourselves as the coaches in that in that sense. We facilitate the coaching, but don't necessarily coach ourselves. Except that one exception in my team, who is a solution engineer who has the product knowledge from the company who would be able to give the coaching specifically on product mm-hmm. if somebody had presented slideware or presented functionality or business impact of a feature of our product in the wrong way, then that person would absolutely be credible to give that feedback. But in general, it is okay. absolutely a sales manager's job. 
Okay, so as you said, you really position yourselves as kind of the right hand of sales managers and more. Uh, it's more about like um, pinpointing, I would say, things that you can listen into calls so that uh, you can have like the inputs of the sales manager who can then take it on one-on-one coaching uh, with uh, their sales representatives uh, more than actually having one-on-one time with them, except, as you mentioned, during the onboarding process because, you know, you have this like 90 days of certification. So this is completely normal, I would say. Absolutely. And sometimes the feedback can not only be to the sales manager, but also to marketing, right? So mm. a lot of our work in enablement is between you know, it's kind of the bridge, if you like, between sales and marketing. A marketing can produce content, can produce messaging, particularly product marketing, for example. And when they deliver that messaging, it can or may not land with the, the field sales team. And so by listening to calls and listening to the reality, we can then feed back to marketing, um, you know, what's working, what's not, what's being used, what's not. And so it's not necessarily an individual's fault, you know, it's, mm-hmm. it's more about what was delivered and how it was delivered. So our role is to assess that and to ascertain where the problem may lie in the chain of people and functions who are involved. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay, got it. It's, uh, it makes perfect sense. And all right, so we talked about, I would say, like the relationship with sales, a little bit of marketing and how you guys position yourself as business partners. Now I'd like to focus on the different markets because as you mentioned, you guys are presenting different markets and what I'd I would love to understand is today when we look at your team, it's a six people team. Uh, it, they are like spread out in different markets, but how do they work? How do they prioritize inputs from different markets? Because I'm, I'm, I'm guessing depending on the geographies, maybe there's some priorities. I don't know. Like, so how do you work with different geographies now? Yeah, it's a really great question. So Again, I I guess one of the learnings from this is the third time I've set up an enablement function. And initially in the first two organizations, sales enablement was very much centralized. Now, as you said, we have people in the different hubs who are very much in in a strong and close relationship with the local sales managers. And so they're on their team meetings. They're in their, you know, huddles on a, on a weekly basis. They are in aware of the performance um, issues if there are issues. And I think being close to those sales managers, understanding the business, they can adapt the programs that come from HQ. Because the reality is, like in most organizations, you have the foundation that comes from the top down with, you know, launching a new product, sales methodology, whatever it may be, we give that, and and I particularly, based in headquarters, give those initiatives. And then Courtney, who's based in in New York, will adapt those, if necessary, to the local market. But I would say it's the 80-20 rule. Because again, if you're selling marketplace in Boston, in, in, in Tokyo, or in Barcelona, I would say most of the sales cycle and the messaging will be the same. Mm-hmm. There will be tweaks, but again, it's it's the 80-20 rule. So that's how we work. Now, having said that, I do think, you know, in, in my previous organization before I joined Miracle, I was working for Sage and I was working for a subsidiary. So I was in charge of all of the Southern Europe region in enablement. But the directives were coming from the UK, where the headquarters was in terms of those programs, etc., And I have to understand that, and I have to say that as a person on the subsidiary side, it's sometimes difficult to receive those programs and say, just roll it out or, you know, um, because 
it's not necessarily completely adapted. And so one thing I have learned is to really understand if it's going to land in the market, Mm -hmm. to get people involved very early on. So I've set up two cadences. I've set up a sales enablement committee where we pre-look at, so I've got a, a pool of expertise, okay, subject matter experts within the business. We look at the content we're going to push out. We look at the enablement we're going to push out. And we try which, to get alignment which, around Which it. just uh, on that, when you say sales enablement committee, these are different people, right, from the ones that are actually in your team. Absolutely. They are subject matter experts within the business. They can come from marketing. They can come from sales. They can come from our um, advisory team. So our business consultant team, they can come from CS, etc. Mm-hmm. And we sit and we align on the quarter's enablement priorities and the enablement needs. And they are very much the, the thought leaders in the organization on specific topics. They would be the content creators in a lot of cases. Okay. And we sit and we align. And then we take that content or that messaging and we bring it to our regional vice president club. Our regional vice president club is simply our sales managers who sit in the different hubs across the world. And they come together and they review this content and they tell me, they give me the feedback. Yes, Neve, this is the right time for this content. This is the right messaging. This is, you know, this will work yes or no, or this is how we have to adapt it. But by bringing them all together in that regional vice president club, it means that we can see that 80-20 because even though we debate it, we can actually see that in many cases, yeah, it'll work. It may not be the right time for market reasons, events reasons. I mean, there may be other things going on locally I don't have full awareness of, but in general it works. But having that alignment is key and not just focusing on the enablement itself. I would also say there's a second reason to do that. It is to enable the enablers because we're a six-person team. We're not the ones in the frontline coaching role, as I mentioned. The sales managers need to feel comfortable with what we're going to enable on before Mm. their teams. Otherwise, it's putting them in difficulty and it's not fair on them and it's not fair on us. And it will lead to like pushback and maybe negativity that we could have avoided. So by doing so, we're getting their buy-in. They're set up as their coaches. They feel more confident in the situation. We then roll out the enablement program and they can give us feedback as to what's happening in reality post the program. Um, So having that input, so yes, it's centralized, but it's really like think think global, act local. You know, it's centralized, not a structure, but you have a local feel to it too. And question, when you take these insights to the regional VP club, let's say you have, I don't know, one or two heads uh, in, in, in other market that actually think it's not the right timing to roll this out. Does this mean that you would hold, that you, you would put like, uh, you know, like this part on hold or would you still roll it out in other countries and say, okay, you guys, whenever you're ready, maybe next quarter, then, you know, you can use that content or whatsoever as well. Absolutely. So it wouldn't hold me back for the for the countries and the regions who are ready to go. It okay. wouldn't hold me back. I would, depending on, again, the strategy of the business and where we're at, because I, then I would feed it back to the C-suite saying, okay, we've had the regional vice president club. Eight out of 10 RVPs are in agreement. These two aren't. These are the reasons. Go, no go. Because at the end of the day, there may be other reasons why we have to push it out that are not necessarily vil- visible to us at our level in the organization. And just to make sure that everybody, again, the C-suite has bought in on that. But honestly, in the majority of cases, it gets rolled out. It's, an, it's 
you know, it may be a question of a days or weeks, but it does get rolled out within the quarter in general. And that's what counts. And I have to be cognizant of the fact that they're they're the CEOs of their region. They're the ones who are in control of their of book of business. They know their people. Um, so I am here to advise, but I am absolutely not here to push. And that's mm. where the alignment comes in and the trusted advisorship comes into. Okay, yeah, that's that's very interesting. You mentioned uh, the Sales Enablement Committee where you, you guys like try to align on uh, with subject matter experts. Okay, what what should we need in terms of content, in, uh, in terms of like training, etc. Then you take that to the regional VPs to get alignment, but also, as you said, to enable the enablers. And I actually love that because at the end of the day, as you mentioned, they are the ones that are going to get to their team, get their buy-in. So you so you need them as well, so so that so the knowledge is spread out properly. Exactly, exactly. They are our, our greatest vectors of knowledge, and if they're <laughs> against us, um, you know, it's it's complicated. You know, we can't yeah, win their yeah. teams over if we can't. You know, yeah. so uh, <laughs> very clear. Okay, and wanted to come back to one aspect that you mentioned. This was a little bit earlier during uh, during the the episode, but I noted down. You mentioned ratio because, like today, there's like mm -hmm. six people for about 200 people on the field. So, what's a good ratio for you? And keen to understand a little bit more of your team routines, how this looks like. Maybe not on a day to day, but on a, on a weekly basis. Like, what do they do exactly? Like, how they how do they interact with people? Sure. So it's it's um, it's a difficult one because I've been reading a lot recently and I've, I've done um, other interviews and a lot of the my peers in the market are saying that, you know, I'm in a, an organization where there are 300, 400 uh, customer facing profiles and I'm the only sales enablement person. How can I get my job done? And I think you can, but you just need to be realistic about what can be done. And it comes back to the business case I was referring to earlier with the C-suite. One of the things that you need to do as the first sales enabler on the ground or the only sales enabler on the ground is put in place a charter of what you're responsible for, what you're not responsible for, what the interdependencies with other teams are, because You know, by definition, if you're on your own, you're going to rely a lot on other inputs from different organizations and how you're going to be measured. And by putting that on paper and actually getting buy-in from EVPs or VPs of sales plus the C-suite, you are then setting yourself up for success. And to get back to your question about ratio, I know that Forrester says it's one to 35, which is an ideal ratio. Realistically, in today's world, that very rarely happens. Um, but... You know, it's, it's, I think a lot can still be done. I was the first person on the ground in 2020. I had to enable over a hundred people. It worked. It probably was very focused on one of our pillars, which was onboarding and not so much on the continuous learning, but that was clear from my charter. That was clear with how we were being measured. Um, and then it evolved. And, and, you know, the thing is, it's a, it's a virtuous circle because when you start proving those business cases and those impact measurements I was speaking about, then you get to recruit. And so uh, I've grown my team now to six people, which is a fantastic uh, achievement. Um, and, and now we can focus on more impactful uh, programs as well. So to answer your question about who does what and how we interact on a daily basis, um, I have got heads of regions, so okay. one in EMEA and one in the US, and then we have more subject matter experts. So we've got a person on product enablement, we've got a person who's more on methodology and skills. Uh, we, also, we also actually 
bring in some external people on those skills pieces as well, depending on the need. So just um, when, when you mention uh, people, you know, in product enablement, are those part of the six people team you are you were telling yes. me earlier? Okay. Yes, absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. Um, and the the heads of region are very much the program managers I was mentioning. Okay. So they're the people who will decide on, um, you know, what programs we need to roll out. I mean, it's it's all a concerted effort because I have a weekly meeting with my team. We look at what the enablement committee has given us. We look at our business objectives as a business as a whole. Then we look at the programs we want to roll out or continue to roll out because most of them are already in motion. Um, and then they will adjust and execute for their regions. Um, with the help of one of the product enablers, for example, or a person who's working on sales methodology. Why? Because in a boot camp situation, so we do have in-person every now and again, in terms of getting everybody together, getting a hub together in a boot camp situation where we have, you know, some product knowledge, we may have some methodology knowledge, and these experts are needed to actually train and deliver on those. Um, and then we certify at the end of that boot camp. So it's very varied. They design virtual modules. They can sometimes facilitate in-person modules. We also design our sales kickoff, our global sales kickoff, our quarterly business reviews, which are the, the quarterly versions of the sales kickoff. Um, so all of those are done by my team. And it's a very close-knit team, as I mentioned, meeting once a week, deciding on what we're doing, deciding on the activities we need, deciding on any issues that you know may crop up. Mm. Um, so that's that's basically how we interact on a day-to-day -day basis and okay. always on, you know, keeping the North Star in mind, the North Star, which are the metrics we want to influence over the over the next uh, quarters. Okay, so yeah, so you have uh, you you still have uh, as you mentioned like two heads, EMEA US, so that you can after like rely on and then cascade. Uh, I would say like the product knowledge, etc., and the directions you guys want to go to make sure that this is relayed the proper way. Exactly, exactly. Okay, got it. Perfect. To me, like this topic is really important, and yes, that's that's why I also asked you like the when to start question because I think once you you start like you see the value and you and you tell yourself, oh my god, we should have started sooner. But it's the changes, I guess, that that needs to happen, and what you shared about how to get there and and how to help like prove the value. I think this was very insightful. So thanks a lot. If that's fine with you, let's move to the last part of uh, every episode, which is the oops, my bad time. Whoops, my bad. For those who tune in the first time, this is a few minutes at the end of each episode where the the guest shares a setback that has occurred or uh, some mistakes that have been done during the internationalization process. So yeah, Niv, if you could maybe share a story with us that we could learn from, it would be great. Yeah, absolutely. So I think one of the things that I did very early in my sales enablement career was, and, and almost when I had that sale tra sales training uh, sticker on my back still, was the check the box exercise. You know, we have a tendency in enablement to say, right, we're having difficulties with qualification at the moment or negotiations aren't going well, we're losing deal value, et cetera, et cetera. Let's do training and let's get into three days of classroom training and problem solved and fixed. And it's a tendency of enablers, but it's also a tendency of managers uh, in certain situations where they're pushing that on us. And that check the box exercise simply does not work. And actually, it is not enablement. Enablement is when you identify the problem, when you try and, you know, fix it through various methods and not just the classroom piece. 
And then when you follow up and measure on it, because the follow up and measurement and what's happening in the field is the really interesting part. And I did that on so many occasions. I traveled to to Asia. I did some some manufacturing training, selling manufacturing solutions. I remember in my days in Electra um, where I was in a Chinese uh, room with Chinese people for three days delivering this training session with some subject matter experts and then pretending that that was done and dusted. Uh-huh. Did the did we see the results afterwards? Absolutely not. And also culturally, um, because you're coming from headquarters and you're uh-huh. sitting in that training room and you're watching people going, yeah, yeah, I understood, when no, no, it actually did not understand. Oh goodness, yeah. and, and so we didn't see any results. I had checked my box. I, it was part of my activity to do that quarter. But so what? That's what I want to say. It's like, so what? So really think of your your programs in terms of um, blended learning, in terms of measurement, in terms of partnership with the sales manager to make sure that it's being implemented, etc. Mm-hmm. And, and really feedback back and relate it to business every time. Um, I would also say culturally, one of the things and the reason we have the sales enablement committee at Miracle now and the RVP club and everything I've just mentioned is because of mistakes as well, uh-huh, where yeah. you try to push out from headquarters, you know, the new tool, you know, we're going to do call listening. We're going to go do call listening everywhere in the world. And, you know, we're going to do it as of next quarter without taking into account the 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 views of the RVPs or the the, the views of the field enough. And that's where I backtracked and had to start from zero again because there are cultural differences. There are varying, you know, political reasons. There may be, um, you know, different things going on in markets that I didn't have visibility on. And it just reinforced the point that, oh God, yeah, I remember when I was in that position in a subsidiary with mm, headquarters pushing me Absolutely, yeah. Not the way to do it and we cannot we cannot get by in that way. So so definitely those two things are are what stands out to me and, and some of the the learnings I've had in my career so far, which yeah. yeah a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> well thanks for sharing this. We learn from successes but much more from mistakes I think for sure. And and as you said, some of the things we put in place it's also because we made some mistakes and it's to never do them again or at least try to not. Thanks a lot, Niamh, for everything you shared with us today. I'm really glad we got to get that episode on, on sales enablement. I guess it, it, it's the first one, and I hope uh, the first of, uh, of many uh, others because it's such an interesting and important topic, I believe. So thanks a lot, and I guess just have to tell you until next time then. Fantastic. Thank you a lot, Tiffen, as well. An excellent experience. And yeah, talk soon. <laughs> talk soon. Bye-bye. Thank you so much for listening until the end. If you liked this episode, don't forget to subscribe to not miss the next one. And please share it with two people in your network. This is how this podcast gets more visibility and can help more of us to work on international markets. See you soon.